Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to today's Irish News Podcast. Today I'm talking with the guys from uh, Big Motive, based in Belfast. How are you doing, guys? Hiya. Hey, good, thanks. Can you please introduce yourself and tell me a bit about your backgrounds? Okay, I'll start, Rebecca, if that's okay with you. No uh, my name is Stephen Shaw. I'm design director at Big Motive, and um, I am principally leading up on user experience design. Hi, yes, I'm Rebecca Walsh, and I'm design director as well at Big Motive, um, and I really look after the service design part of the business. Okay, and tell me what does Big Motive actually do? Um, we're a design and innovation company, so we we bring design thinking, I suppose, through to all kinds of different projects, both you know digital products, um, design for software interface design, um, but also taking that through into processes and services, and also some capability design as well. We will work with companies who want to embed um, design thinking and, and and the way you can use design as a as a kind of strategic guide um, and help them with innovation strategy and, and all kinds of other things. And Rebecca, I'm sure there's a bunch of other stuff as well. Yeah, definitely. So um, um, I contracted a lot with the public sector and um, I would look mainly at sort of citizen focused um, services and would work with Stephen as well on how we embed products within that. So um, it's really about um, a holistic um, look at citizen experience or um, or user experience or human-centred um, design as well. So at the minute, we're working quite a lot with um, the public sector on, on the COVID-19 um, services. And, and that really is looking um, very much at um, you know all the services, all the touch points the user would go through um, within that service as well. And I guess you're gonna make so you're gonna make sure that when you're doing this, that the user doesn't at any point feel like uh, they're they're lost because they've got to know where to see things on the screen. So if it's more than two clicks away or, or two button pushes away, they they're gonna they're not gonna be able to use it. That's it. You know, the best services we would say are invisible, you know, yeah. to a user, so that they they shouldn't know at the end that they've gone through a service as such. They they should just have been able to do what whatever they were there to to do. Yeah, exactly. It's probably important to say as, as, as well that Big Motive is pretty multidisciplinary in, in its people as well as its services. I mean, my background is, is art school in Glasgow and Belfast and Rebecca, yours is in aeronautical engineering. Yeah, and we have um, designers and strategists and researchers, and um, it's a real a real mix um, within the business, which is great for the projects that we do, um, and also a real mix of experiences um, as well. You know, a lot of people with global experience too. So to bring that back into Belfast um, and to work with Belfast companies um, has been really exciting for us as well. So um, we're only nine people in Big Motive. Um, you know, small but mighty, we say. Yeah. And uh, but the the work we do, the our favorite work, I suppose, is working actually all nine of us on one project, um, and working together on something um to to make a difference. So we love those projects that have a real impact, um, on the user and citizens. Yeah, I guess because you said you got nine different guys with different disciplines behind you, that helps because you got more than one voice coming in. So you, when it's finally developed, you've covered a lot of areas. Yeah, exactly. 
yeah and it's not just about i suppose traditionally um trained designers as well like as steven says you know my background is aeronautical engineering so you know i started in aerodynamic design and and people always wonder how that you know how i diversified into service design and um and actually the process is the the same you know it's still human-centered starts with research you know goes through to um ideation and prototyping and testing um but it's just a different outcome you're designing something different at the end of it but but i always say the process is the same yeah i guess because normally when you're designing something for uh, like an airplane it could be a seat whatever you're going to make sure there's no space and that person is relaxed and when you design an app, you've got to make sure that the person is looking at it, is relaxed as well and doesn't get stressed or anything else. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so when you're looking, I suppose, yeah, interior aircraft is, is one experience for the individual. But, yeah, everything else is, you know, you still have to think about the passengers um, at the heart of it as well as the technology too. So, um, to me, it's kind of the same sort of concept with technology and, and products, which Stephen can talk more about, of course. Yeah. So uh, tell me a bit more about the COVID-19 response uh, app you've designed for the Department of Health in Northern Ireland. Yes, it's really funny thinking back to the start of this. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about lockdown, sort of that second week of March. And um, it was on the the Sunday um, just before St. Patrick's Day that we were contacted by the Department of Health um, about a potential lockdown and how we could help design a symptom checker, which was the first thing that we were asked to design. So we were brought into a meeting um, on that Monday with um, a great technology company in Belfast called Civica. And we had a discussion about, you know, how we could actually do a very user um user-centered, um, you know, very user-friendly way of allowing people to check coronavirus symptoms. Um, and I suppose the objective for us at the very start was to take those users away from other services such as, um, you know, the hospitals, GP out of ours, um, and at the time in Northern Ireland, the 111 service. Um, and actually, for those who didn't have severe symptoms, to, to check their symptoms online. Um, and actually, I was in the office um, last week and we had went into the office on St. Patrick's Day and we, we basically did the wireframes on a whiteboard. And those initial wireframes are still on the whiteboard at the back of the office. Um, and, and we did all the logic and... Um, it basically says if you if you don't have coronavirus symptoms, you don't have to do anything, but you have to stay at home. Um, if you had symptoms, you had to self-isolate and also asked you about, you know, your family and who you were living with. And um, it also asked you to shield um, if you were particularly vulnerable or if you had more serious symptoms that asks you to um, contact your GP or GP out of ours. So that, that was the very initial um, part of the app. And then we're now actually just about to release version four. Um, and we, over the last um, couple of months, have just made it even more user-friendly. Um, we've brought in coronavirus statistics um, from Northern Ireland. We're giving people more advice on it. Um, there's an advice search um, and there also is a link to sort of latest news regulations um, and guidelines for that too. So it's really been an iterative process um, and, you know, I keep on thinking about, um, you know, how do you keep to that user-centered design process when you're designing something at such a quick rate, you know, like we had that app designed 
tested, um, developed in 10 days. Um, and the reason it wasn't on the app stores for a couple of weeks was just to get through the app store reviews. So yeah. um, and we were t- totally true to the design process. So we recruited users. Um, we tested the prototype. Um, we got we, we basically went out to friendlies first, so colleagues, families, friends, and said, could you please come and do user testing with us? Um, and then we, we tested again, and every iteration, we've just been doing the same thing to um, to allow it to be better and better. So so that's the journey of the, the Symptom Checker um, app that we originally did then for the Department of Health. Yeah, I guess when you're developing for, for a mobile device, you've got a small screen and you would have a laptop. So you got to make sure that whatever you fit in there do, feels just right and doesn't feel, feel it shouldn't be there. Yeah, fully accessible, you know, and um, <coughs> I suppose when you're, when we first put it out, everyone said, you know, it's, it's very simple. And actually, that's what we were aiming for. So, you know, simplicity that anyone could go onto it um, and use it. Um, so accessibility and, you know, be, inclusive design has been a real part of designing this app. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point to pick up on, Rebecca. In, inclusive design, you know, the idea that, that you design for, for everyone, for, for people with all kinds of abilities, for people who have, have different needs, um, because if it's right for them, then it's right for, for everyone else. That, that principle not only, I think, started to kind of exist within the app, but the, the inclusivity within the development and design teams and the and the Department of Health teams as well was was critical. Everyone was aligned. That could only happen at pace because everyone was on the daily stand-ups. Um, all the tools we were using for design were collaborative tools. So, you know, the review process was active. The documentation was live. The user testing that Rebecca mentioned was happening at pace alongside development. And then the the, the feedback from that was, was feeding into the development sprints. So... I heard somebody the other day say that lockdown didn't change the world. It just made everything, you know, move 10 years on a little bit faster than it would have done. Yeah. And I think this was quite the same in, in the design and development process. People just got with it and, and got rid of a lot of the previous kind of procedural kind of mud that tended to slow them down. Yeah. And I think working with great teams was definitely part of it, you know, and, and having, as Stephen says, that mix of clinicians and, um, you know, we had pharmacists involved and, and GPs involved and um, social care involved. And, and we, um, you know, we, we just a really, really good design team um, within that as well. And even for, like, we work with more teams and we I think we've learned more about accessibility and inclusive yeah. design as we've been going, going along, you know, mm-hmm. every day for us as a, is a learning day and we're constantly trying to get better um, at this as well. So we've learned a lot from that team. Well, I guess if you, if you got some service to test it out, they'd have a different view than what the uh, doctors and physicians would have. So maybe it's best to go with them because I know with a civil servant, they've got a brief and they want the brief to look a certain way and they don't know, they have no background knowledge of what GPs and physicians have or what you guys have. So at least when you're dealing with people who are going to be using it day and day or, or if customers are going to be using it or, or uh, patients, they can tell you what's good and what's bad. That, that's true, Ronan, although we find that some of the folk in Department of Health are also clinicians. Yeah. So some of them will also do out-of-hours doctor work, for instance. So actually, you know, everyone from, like, you know, the chief medical officer all the way down 
is able to contribute and, and add something from their own experience. The multiple stakeholders thing that Rebecca mentioned there was yeah. was really transformative, I think, in, in getting something that to the quality that it was um, in the in the speed that it that it happened. And they, they also trusted the design process, which was lovely. And yes. and the development team, you know, laughed at me a couple of times because I said, you know, it's great to work with a design sympathetic development team. Yeah. Um, but that but it was so true because they, you know, and I'm just off a call with them and they've just been, they've said it's actually been a game changer for them to work with a design team because, you know, they would have had to be trying to do the design in-house um, and the development. So to have somebody there who's solely looking at the design, but, you know, we, we have somebody in-house as well that, you know, has development skills. So we, we understand what they're trying to do and they understand what we're trying to do. Um, and that's been brilliant for um, for the design and development of the of the app. Yeah, I, we've got in, in Big Motive a, a pretty deep understanding of development processes and the the challenges that developers face. And we've been involved in in engineering and design projects for many many years. I mean, we've worked with with, with new products like VR. We've we've designed um, products for big e-commerce resellers like Net-A-Porte. Yeah. Um, so uh, again, I think there was there was a legacy of, of respect, I suppose, uh, and, and empathy for for developers that um, I suspect made things work a lot more easily than than it would have done otherwise. Yeah, and what challenges did you have to overcome when you were developing the app? I would say one of them definitely was the pace and the compressed deadlines, but we've kind of already talked a lot about how, you know, the sort of the daily rhythm of, of stand-up and engagement and the parallel design and development process really helped with that. Um, I also think that, that we find that there were, um, we thought there were going to be challenges with communication and with user testing in particular. Um, how do we do this remotely? Because usually when we do user interviews, we have people in the room, we have cameras set up. We, we observe their reactions as well as their interactions. Yeah. Um, and we thought that was going to be pretty challenging. But Rebecca, I think we 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 managed to sort of recreate as much of that as possible yeah. on Zoom or whatever channel was was suitable for them. Mm-hmm. And I think we got a lot closer than we expected to to pretty high quality um, results from the research. Yeah, and I, I think the, the user research was definitely a challenge, you know, even though I think that because we had done remote user research before, we were well-equipped and we used collaborative tools all the time, so we were well-equipped to deal with it. Um, we are, you know, I suppose Belfast is quite small, Northern Ireland's quite small, yeah. you know, it was really good that we had a really good network of, um, if we couldn't get to an individual or a demographic that we wanted to get to, we engaged with a support group. Um, who was able to help us with that so um, for instance Ada and I that we work with you know um, they were very good in, in sort of ensuring that we had got the, the older demographic to test with you yeah. know a couple of support groups made sure that we got out to um, to youths that we maybe wouldn't normally speak to as well so um, and, and also just even for people who weren't really great at technology we were able to engage with a family member or friend um, to help them actually test with us so, so I think we got through that challenge um, I think for me, the challenge at the very start was um, the the change in um, advice, the the constant change of advice yeah. um, that we had to 
add to the app um, at the very start, add to all of the, the sort of pieces of technology that we were working on. Um, the coronavirus symptoms changed. The advice was constantly changing. Um, you know, there were um, there were pieces of advice about going out and then, you know, it's stay at home one time and not stay at home. And then for, for people who were shielding, the advice changed. Um, and Ronan, I know that was the same for, um, for the, the South as well, you know. So for us, being on top of that, was was a challenge and still is a challenge actually at this time but we're we're trying to make sure that everything we're doing is very dynamic and we can easily change it and and um, we can update as we go along now so we've got over that one too eight years ago i was in college doing a postgrad in collect computing one of our crosses was ui ux in a college you have a ui ux lab where you can go and do testing and had all the cameras you're talking about earlier i'm thinking if, if, if that was to be done now in in the in the pandemic you guys did a brilliant job to, to manage to, to, to do all that in, in role working. It's a great job. Yeah, it's really good. And actually, you know, even just, even though you can't observe people, you can get them to share their screen and you can actually see their mouse and where they're clicking, you know, their ways around um, that. Um, and also just, you know, there's another bit of observational work that we have to do soon over the next week. And we actually physically can go and do the observational work, but we have to obviously be protected the users and we have to protect ourselves you know and that'll change I think as well how we physically do observation work that we have to do it's just something that we can't do yeah, remotely totally. um, but we have to be aware of the restrictions on doing it as well and interestingly the the, the folk that we did user testing with who could do um who could use their webcams so we could see their faces we could we could actually see their reactions to what they were seeing on screen almost a little bit more clearly than we might have done in in real life because they're they they're so unguarded in their responses. They 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 they, they feel um, less intruded upon by someone sitting right beside them. Yeah. So there were some aspects to it that were almost I think um, almost better. And also, we're using uh, iOS and Android or just iOS. Both, um, yeah. although in testing, it really depended on the access the users had to to technology on their end. Yeah, because that's me the challenge if you develop two different OSs at the same time. Because what works now, iOS mightn't work that easy on Android, vice versa. You, the the way we approach this is to to always think obviously about both platforms yeah. and think about the design systems that exist across both platforms and the interface guidelines and all the rest of it. Um, but a lot of the developers, um, certainly in in these projects, we find we're using tools like Xamarin or whatever that are that are that are exporting into both platforms yeah, from quite, one source. Yeah. So uh, that's, again, helping to sort of integrate the design process into a way that makes it a little bit easier for the likes of us. And I guess one thing for me, I find if you've got different, different screen sizes, how do you make sure that it works well on, on a four-inch screen and a six-inch screen? Exactly. The, the way we approach um, that kind of responsive design for mobile apps is largely the same as we have done for many years for the web. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're considering things like screen depth and scrollability and, you know, the important interactions of where they need to be. But, um, I mean, one of the, uh, the things that, that we saw again and again was that people are comfortable using phones, scrolling, zooming, tapping. Yeah. It, it's, it's rare. I mean, you really have to kind of overload a screen before people start to go, oh, yeah, maybe we could scroll this. Plus, I guess... Our team has so much experience yeah. in design for these kinds of products that 
before it's even going into testing, there's like years of previous product design that's been tested that we've developed learnings from. So a lot of it happens almost um, almost in the in the flow of the design process before we're even putting it in front of users. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for, for this work, because we're obviously working with government as well, um, we stick very much to the, the government digital services. So the GDS design patterns to, yes. you know, which have been tried and tested and, you know, we know that, that they work, um, and for, for usability and different, um, screen sizes and devices. So, um, so we would very much stick to the GDS design principles for that as well. Yeah. And what else are you involved with in concerning COVID nineteen? A range of things. I mean, there's there's other digital products being developed, um, and Rebecca, you've done a lot of work on um, some of the services around around COVID. Yeah, mm. so we, we've been working a lot um, with the uh, the teams in the Department of Health and the Public Health Agency on the integration of services because as you can imagine when this all started in March services were being created very very quickly and um, because that was happening sometimes they um, as you, when you look at service design and it's about services you know holistically for the user and that that sometimes the user doesn't see that it's a separate service um, you know that was sort of missed in the initial response and what we did was um, early in April actually we went back looked at the services that were being created um, with our own as well and started to look at um, the citizen journey, the full journey um, through, you know, developing symptoms, through to checking those symptoms, through to booking a test, um, through to contact tracing. Um, and we actually started to try to see whether we could integrate those services. Uh, and that was um, with sort of design consistency but also just you know are we communicating the message as well as we should be and do people know that they they should be tested if they get symptoms that was another thing that was constantly changing that testing was only available here for key workers um, and then it took a while for testing to be available to the general public and then when testing was available I don't think people here knew that they should get tested because yeah. the message had been you should stay at home you know you can't get tested so yeah. um it was about how do you change that message then and i suppose we're into this next stage which is um if you test positive you know how do we encourage people that contact tracing is something that they should do to protect their community so we've been looking at the the integration of of those different services um, and also then we were looking at the non-digital service. So a lot of these services, um, as they should be, were created um, digitally. And um, we also had to be considerate of people that weren't able to use, for instance, the national initiative to book a test because it was all online and you needed a, a mobile number or an email address. Yeah. Um, how could actually those people who, who didn't have that technology, how could they book a test um, the people who are shielding, how how can they leave the house and get a test? So we started to look at, at those services as well. Um, and we actually designed then the non-digital um, flow for, for those individuals. Um, and that then was it went into basically a call centre script. So our um, our journey maps as we created, so our, you know, 
citizen digital journeys and our non-digital journeys then were used then to create the actual service. And then we also looked at um, at some of the services for nursing homes as well, because mm-hmm. that was a big thing, you know, as well. So how was that being um, being handled too? So, so that was a massive project and still is because those journey maps that we have created are still changing. Um, and actually, I think they've been sent out to a, a lot of the, the public sector um, and a lot of people are looking at them for their for the design of their services so that they can see where their um, service integrates into the other services then. So um, huge piece of work. And then Stephen and I have been involved in another big piece. Yeah, I mean, it's a, there are many sort of threads to this, um, to the COVID response generally. And um, I mean, Rebecca mentioned there's some of the, the, the manual contact tracing or the, the call centre-based contact tracing. There's other work we've been looking at in terms of digital contact tracing um, and how that could be supported and how that could be delivered. Um, all of these things, I think, are, are, are benefit hugely from that crossover. So if, if Rebecca and, and some of the team are working, for instance, on something offline, something non-digital, say it's a, it's a script for a call centre, the language used there, the understanding of the process, the understanding of the requirements, that's a really easy like piece of knowledge to transfer across into the digital side then. So you're not sitting, you know, noodling around with, you know, what, what views need to be in this? You know, what's the user flow here? What's, you know, what, what do we need to wireframe? Because already there's this deeper understanding of, of how these systems and processes work in both sides, which is really, I think, at the heart of what we try to say about design and big motive, it's it's not just about UI, it's not just about graphics, it's not just about logos or brands or or anything like that. It's about a much wider experience into yeah. which these digital products can fit. And what do you think about the uh, the app that's developed in the south for contact tracing? Is that something that you could look at doing or, or... we've we've taken a lot we've looked at that very closely um in in in, ter- in fairness we should disclose we're we're working in partnership with the developers that have built that up and therefore so so we're we're not um we're not unbiased but we've learned a lot from the work that they did and um yeah that and they've been very open and helpful and they've shared that with us in a way that's that's made our lives a lot easier and, and has benefited everybody working in the project so um we think it's we think it's pretty good. And <clears throat> for me, <clears throat> when it was launched and the fact that they, they, they put online the source code of it, that to me says they're open. And, and if anyone's worried about using this app because they feel it, it's going to be intrusive in their lives, the fact the source code is there, you, you can then see right away this is something you have to download. Whereas if the source code wasn't available, you get more word or technical about it, how, how it can be used. Yeah. Absolutely, and in all our interactions with with the guys at Nearform, it's been just that full disclosure, transparency, openness, willingness to collaborate. So that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, and also because they follow the the what the Google and Apple APIs, that's more than APIs that that they know do work. And when they're doing this, they don't have to worry it's compatible with Android or, or Apple because they know it is by following the guidelines. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, there, interestingly, there, there is a wee bit of a, um, an issue with Huawei at the minute, totally yeah. separate from all the kind of the Huawei stories to do with, you know, 5G and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, because Google have stopped letting Huawei use Android, 
the the P40s, some of the newer phones actually don't have the capacity to yeah. run the 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 um the contact tracing OS level uh, code. So it's there's there's interesting diversions there in and around the way the technology rolls out. But um yeah, I think it's I think to be honest with you, what what Ireland has done, and we see you know both sides of the border here we see what's happening in the north and in the south and certainly the, the work that's been done um in the south is is pretty world leading because when, when it was announced we were going to do a slap people were wondering when it was going to be available and every time they kept pushing a date back and then when it got launched i think within the first day it got a, a million downloads which is unprecedented yeah. and uh, I, I downloaded it and i think the app is easy to use so simple and you don't at any time feel like you're stressed or worried about COVID when you're using the app because it makes you, the, the colouring and everything is so calm and relaxing. You don't suddenly feel, oh, God, I got this. What do I do? What do I do? Yeah, absolutely. We, we've actually done some, or had some input from um, behavioural scientists yeah. in, in the north here and some of the work we've been doing. Um, and that's been really big for them that, that, that there are a number of ways that, that you can nudge positive behaviours yeah. in something as simple as a mobile app um, simply by thanking people for using it or, as you say, by using colours and, and, and elements of design that, are des- that, that cause people to feel more relaxed, that seem simple, yeah. that don't look overcomplicated. Yeah, because when I'm using it and it's asked how, how you feel today and it gives you two faces, smile or sad face, like an emoji, and something you're really used to when you're texting. So because of yeah. that, you know, you know, alien thing. Oh, great! It's it's talking to my language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so just to say that the reason, you know, that ours is separate. So we did talk about the symptom checking app, and you know, Stephen mentioned very briefly there about contact tracing. So in our symptom checker app, um, it's actually it's a lot more detailed. Um, yeah. so the we we need to be conscious that people are worried about data at the minute. Yeah. Um, and with the the symptom checkers you know, that the more detailed symptom checkers that do ask for, you know, your age and um, potentially gender and, and different things. And that's what we didn't want people to be worried about um, if they were using contact tracing as well. So so, so that's why it's um, it's two separate things. Um, but it's also worth noting, like I, I do see a lot of people um, and even with the HSE app worry still about data protection, you know, yeah. and there is so much work. I mean, you know, how many conversations, Stephen, are we having, mm-hmm. you know, on a daily basis about data protection um, and about how much information, you know, the person has to give. And, and we've put a lot of work into that. And I know that the HSE app is the same as well. And um, I think that what we try to push is that the contact tracing app is part of a bigger contact tracing service. Yeah. It's all one service. It's really what it's trying to do is pick up people that you actually don't know their their details for so when you're doing manual contact tracing and somebody rings you up and says who have you been in close contact with if you've had a positive test and and you could you could probably give them your household and you might be able to give them the people that you work with um but actually you probably wouldn't know who you met on the street you wouldn't know their phone number you know um you mightn't even know their name um or now i suppose when the bars are back open and the shops are back open so the proximity app is meant to meant to trace those people you know that um that you wouldn't be able to manually contact trace so so we see it as a as one service 
you know. And you know, one of the, one of the fun, funny things I find in, in some of the user testing interviews was that on the one hand, there's this huge effort by everyone involved to to genuinely consider data protection and, and privacy. Yeah. And and yet, and people appreciate that. And yet, when you get to, to the point in a user flow where, where, for instance, you know they're being notified that maybe somebody they've been in contact with has has got COVID nineteen, suddenly they want to know all about them and where they were and who it was. So you have this funny dichotomy of the desire for personal privacy, but also a high level of desire, even though it's not possible to deliver it, to actually know more about um, who has who has potentially exposed them to COVID. You were looking in the HSE app, it all asks you for opportunities, your phone number, nothing else. So, for example, you you go every morning and when work you get a coffee in a coffee shop, take a take week to work. You're not going to know who the person serving you is fully or much about them. With this yeah. app, you can actually, it, it can actually say, oh, this person has it. And you're never going to know their name or anything else, which is my view is why should you? Yeah. Exactly. And I, I always find it really interesting that when people um complain about data privacy they're normally doing it on social media yeah um, i've seen it yeah. always makes me laugh a wee bit you know it's yeah <laughs> or if somebody complains and there's somebody who's active on tinder and they're talking to strangers all the time and saying oh but i can't but well, you're on tinder and you're talking to a stranger <laughs> and you want and you're not willing you want to share more data with them than you are with something else what's the exactly. difference yeah exactly but the, the testers we tested with were very positive about it and and I think that um, the negativity comes um, from people maybe who haven't experienced coronavirus and, and you know, luckily um, nobody in the team has had it, which is really good. And I don't think for, like very many family and friends have had it either. But um, I suppose the, the whole protection of your community comes from protection of your family and friends and people you're close to. And I, I think sometimes that's lost because we've been in lockdown for so long that people just want to get out and about. Um, but there still is this fear that, you know, like I would have a fear of going down and giving it to my parents and I know other people have and that's what would make you want to be able to to use those services. Um, and I think that the negativity sometimes comes from people who haven't experienced what it what it could be like to have somebody who has the, the virus. So yeah. um, so we, we just make sure that we, we test and even though we get negativity at the start, I think people, as as it's shown, as the HSE one has shown, that people will download it because they, they see some sort of value in it for themselves and for their community. That's right. And, and the value that, that people express is interestingly varied. So for people who are more vulnerable, the value for them is, is absolutely front and centre that it protects them and their community. But for younger people or people who feel less vulnerable, the value for them has to be framed around this could help stop lockdown. This yeah. is a way that we can escape, you know, this awful thing that we've been suffering. So those two messages really need to go out in combination when we're we're encouraging people to take part in, in contact tracing of any type or, you know, engage with, you know, using an app that, that might help in this kind of situation. Yeah, because for me, the main thing is if people are more in, uh, told basically using this app for country is going to help come out from not having any more lockdowns, and make sure we can get back to a normal life as possible. That should be that. That's what they should be told about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and rather than rather than see the negative stories like oh we got so many deaths or anything else, oh we're going to be in first lockdown, or you got to wear masks or you got to do this or that, rather than being told things you can't do, if you can tell what you can't do in a pleasant way and by doing these things, things you can do will will soon be coming back into focus. 
That's right. People want people really respond well to the ability to take some kind of control back. Yeah. And positively doing something. Yeah, and before we finish, you recently uh, started doing a running series of training courses in partnership with Design Thinkers Academy in Amsterdam. Tell me a bit about that as well. Yeah, so we've been talking to Design Thinkers Academy for. Um, goodness it must be two years now and um, we originally connected with them because we were running um, sort of design thinking and innovation courses for our clients and we started to do some public courses um, and we got you know quite a lot of uptake with those courses and we enjoyed doing it because we were learning a lot and you know it was really just showing that that benefit of using design to to other people um, and the mix was great because we got public sector private sector voluntary we got engineers you know and we got maybe other designers coming along and we thought we we can't just do this by ourselves. We would love to partner with somebody else. Um, and we had a contact in the Design Thinkers Academy and we had um, a few chats with them, maybe six months, um, just to, to make sure it was a cultural fit, actually, because they're very much into can we work with these people and, you know, can they work with us? So that was lovely. And then we decided we would do um, our first um face-to-face course actually just before lockdown and they were to fly over and we had it all planned out and then um obviously COVID happened and we cancelled the course so we've decided um we would rebook the course for October but actually we'll do an online version of it um which is over six days so half half um half days for six days um, and it's really the same sort of content that was um, that was going to be in the physical course, um, but obviously using online tools. So um, Damien, our managing partner, and myself are going to be running those courses. So we're very excited to, to partner with the Design Thinkers Academy. Um, and we hope all being well that they will be able to come to Belfast um, in October to actually run, run the course with us. Um, and we're really putting that out, I suppose, to everyone on the island, you know, um, because it's remote now, actually, it's anyone in the world, I think, can sign up. Yes. So even though we're, we're saying, oh, it's in Belfast, um, I think for some of the other courses, um, we know a person from Queen's University Belfast was on their Amsterdam course. So um, we're very excited to to see how that goes. Um, and, and actually, we've been running quite a few different things online now. And I think it's taken a, a bit, Stephen, I don't know for you, but definitely for me to actually switch to remote facilitation um it's yes. definitely been different um i think it's i nearly fade off an audience so it's been different for me to not be able to see <laughs> everyone's faces you know and, and we love to have a joke and a laugh and that's harder to do i think um online as well but um so we're doing that which is great and then um steven i think you're going to maybe talk about co-founders as well which we're doing remotely which is well, just, just briefly um because i'm conscious of time here we, we also have um, for, for the last four years, been working with Catalyst in Belfast to deliver co-founders, which is really a kind of design thinking bootcamp for startups to, to get them to, to some kind of product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a roughly 10-week course that's usually delivered over a bunch of sessions, live sessions in person on, on Monday nights. And that all had to completely flip around and go go virtual. Um and again, I think to your point, Rebecca, about, you know, feeding off an audience or, or, you know, learning how to deliver these kinds of pieces of content better online, it took us a few false starts. The first few sessions were a bit choppy. We used some some online tools to share 
course content. Some of that worked better than others, but we just iterated every week until we got to a point where we had a perfect combination of coaching sessions, one-to-ones, and then group webinars that, um, that I think really delivered as good an experience for those people as the, um, as the turning up, albeit they didn't get the free pizza and stuff, yeah. but apart from the free pizza, it was pretty much just as good. Thanks so much for that, Rick and Steve, and have a great day and good luck in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Likewise.